Hello to everybody who's watching uh, and welcome to this latest edition of CM Conversations and our live webinars, which we do across all of the sectors we work in. Um, today is the turn of CM Medical and CM Life Science, and we're going to be talking about all things reimbursement. Um, so that covers both the medical and the biotech spaces, and I'm delighted today to be joined by three fantastic guests um, who I'll let introduce themselves in a second. Um, I'll introduce myself first. I'm Chris Holland, so I'm Director of Marketing and Revenue Operations here at Charlton Morris. Um, I'll be playing the role of the uneducated and uninitiated to all things reimbursement today, so I'll be asking um, some very helpfully, hopefully basic questions to set the scene and then we'll go and get into some more, uh, much more complex things uh, a little bit later on. But yeah, I'll hand over to our guests to introduce themselves too. So Henry, do you want to go first? Hi there, yeah, I'm Henry Bell here. I'm a principal consultant uh, in the medical device team. Uh, I've got just under 10 years of experience um, in headhunting and talent solutions in medical devices. Um, work with and partnered with startups, SMEs and Fortune 500 companies, uh, helping them build teams to bring uh, disruptive technology to the market. Deborah? I'm Deborah. Um, I, I'm an Australian, which you will hear very quickly with the accent. My background is I was a registered nurse um, in Australia for 10 years, then I moved to the UK in 2006. So I've been in the industry since then um, in varying roles, um, managing AMEA, and I've been with Odell Technology for about three years. Perfect. And then last but last but not least, Stephen, and if you could give us a little a little introduction to Odell as well, that'd be great. And, and the work that you guys do. Certainly. Um, Stephen Haken. I'm a director of Odell. In fact, I work for Deborah. Um, the company helps with market access, reimbursement, government affairs, um, and perhaps um, outcome based agreements and due diligence for VCs. It's been going for about 15 years. It has a base in uh, the UK near Oxford and near Bordeaux in France. Amazing. Right, well, that's everybody introduced. So before we move on, um, a little bit of housekeeping. So everyone who is joining us, hello. Um, there's quite a few of you already. Please feel free to use the Q&A feature um, that you can see in the bottom of your window there. Um, if we've got time at the end of this, um, which I'm hoping that we will, um, we'll, get, we'll make sure that we can get around to, to your questions and we can um, ask Steve and Deborah or, or Henry uh, for their thoughts on those. We'll also, later on um, in this, I'll be putting a link in the chat so you can download a PDF of a lot of the things that we covering this but no right let's get straight into it so as promised i'll start off with a very basic question what you know set the scene for us what is what is reimbursement and and what is the sort of principle of it i'll answer that so um so reimbursement from a medical device perspective is the payment made by a government or a private insurer or even a public insurer to a healthcare provider. And we often use the word provider. I think we used to yes, say hospital, but it's not always a hospital that provides the care. So now you'll hear provider. Um, and so this payment is made in exchange for performing a required procedure. And I think um, that procedure part is actually really important because the provider gets paid for the procedure. They get paid to do a total knee replacement or a uh, a hernia repair, they don't get paid for how it gets done. And so this becomes more important as, especially with med devices, with innovation that comes through that often has a higher price, um, often better outcomes, but that's not considered in the reimbursement. It's a, a price paid to perform a procedure. Right, okay. And so 
I mean, that's obviously a, a, um, a, a straightforward instruction to it, but I'm, I'm right in thinking that in, say, take Europe as an example, which I know we're going to focus on here, um, that it works very differently in lots of different territories. It's not, it, not all reimbursement is created equal. Is that right? That is correct. And if, and if, yes, and every country is different. And certainly um, when we explain a little bit more, even countries are different within themselves. So yes, absolutely. Cool. Well, I, um, and I'll jump to, I'd say something I prepared earlier, but I didn't. Um, so I'll, if I, if I could just share my screen there now. Um, so Deborah and, and Stephen um, have very kindly um, offered to take us through um, how reimbursement works in sort of five of the major European territories. Um, so yeah, I'll, um, I, I, will, I will hand back over to you guys and you can, you can tell us a little bit about that. Oh, just Stephen, just before you start quickly, just for everyone to know, so this is the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg. So just remember that it, it's, it's very complex underneath it, but we wanted to give you a flavor at least, especially if you don't understand how reimbursement works across the different countries. This is, a, this is a good introduction. So it's a very, very top line. Perfect. Okay, so um, France has um, a terrification or a tarification system. And it works off um, a DRG system, a diagnostic related group system. And it's um, a very well structured system. And there are three underlying principles in this whole thing so that devices integrate into their DRG system and it's through the Department of Assessing Particular Devices. So that's the DEAI is the acronym that's used in France. And that's run by a gentleman called Herbert Gilmarsh. And he's probably one of the most powerful individuals in the health of a high authority for health in France. And he is the gentleman with his team of 26 people in Paris who assess medical devices and, um, and pharmaceutical products. So the first principle is the device can be incorporated through, into a DRG through an assessment. The second principle is that the medical device can already be included in, um, in a list of products that are already registered to be included, and that's the LPPPR list. They also control that, and the controlling arm of that is by a lady by the name of Chantelle Guilham, She's in charge of a, a significant list of 120 people on the edge, on the south edge of Paris. The third principle you know, for medical devices is they, there's a formal assessment done and they look at actual benefit, they look at added clinical value, they'll look at all the comparators obviously with added clinical value, and it works on the evaluation of the device for the list onto the LPPR or for an addition to um, a DRG code. Um, the procedural guidelines uh, can take up to get a new DRG code is around a two and a half year procedure in the French, in the French system, in the HAS. However, there are opportunities for, um, for innovative products, depending on their importance in the system. There are frameworks for add-ons in reimbursement, as you can see. So we can look at the performance and the prices determined by, um, again, that particular department that I mentioned, the DEAI. And it, it's all, for me, France is simply about, it's not a complicated system. It's, it's, a, it's a very much a clerical tick box check system. And I think that innovation is something that the French system can 
accommodate quite easily. And, and just a question on that then. So you mentioned that the, the sort of rough time scale of two and a half years, but based on the priority and, and are those priorities changing all the time then? Yes, they are. So um, a couple of examples currently, uh, ro robotic surgery, um, and that's something that um, the French have become um, a significant player in. In fact, they're the second largest robotic surgery um, consumer in the world now. So they've created um, a new silo for coding in robotics. Um, digital pathology is another area where the priority has become important because they can see the added value. So they're creating a new silo of codes for digital pathology. Um, there's a number of cancer treatments that have come on board in France before any other country has taken them on board. You might look at the, the CAR T cell therapies. You might look at some of the cell protection therapies that are going on in biotech. And France has been the leader in a number of those particular fields. So yes, there's a number of, there's a number of organizations inside of HAS that are facilitate early innovation and, and, and a reimbursable code that can be issued reasonably quickly, faster than two years, within a matter of six to seven months. Right. And it's eventually the creation of meaningful clinical evidence. Right. And I think, well, we've seen more than any other time in history how quickly things can move, can't we? In the Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Great. And, and so this is just continuing with, with what you were saying. Yes, it is. So you, it's, it's important to, in France to, to look at, um, I think, the national cost structure or if you like the DRG code and where your procedure, when your, where your technology would fit into a procedure, be that in the outpatient, be it in the inpatient. And also there's also regional, so uh, re regional um, variants in France. So in some regions, you're going to get um, an average costing and other regions you'll get a top up costing, not too different from the early London variants that existed when we had strategic health authorities. But yeah, there's a number of things. It becomes incredibly, it, I won't say complex, it becomes incredibly involved and layered like an onion. Yeah. yeah I was going to say, obviously, you, um, you started off by saying, yeah, this is a pretty straightforward. Oh, it is. It is. But, one, but you've just got to make sure that your particular technology, you've got to identify the pathway for your particular technology. Sure. Okay, great. So moving on then, um, Deborah, if you want to tell us a little bit about, about the German system and how that might work. So um, the German system has a, um, the main pays in the German, so German has a statutory health insurance system. So the insurance funds, the sickness funds are absolutely key stakeholders in Germany. Um, reimbursement for hospital procedures for, and hospital inpatient procedures are made solely via the DRG. So this is if you are a patient, you've stayed overnight. This is really important because if you're an outpatient or in an ambulatory type setting, a day case or an outpatient care, it is completely, the reimbursement is completely separate. So that's really important if your device fits in, whether your device fits into an inpatient or an outpatient setting because they are paid completely differently. The, so the German has the, again, a DRG system. They have a procedure code Stephen was talking about. So all countries have a procedure code. So this is a, a data point that you need that starts along the process. And, and, and if you imagine the DRG is an umbrella and you've got all these, or a matrix that has all these sections that come into it, the procedure code is crucial. And it doesn't, it may not always, or it doesn't determine the tariff, the price, 
but it's a point of data that helps along the process for, um, for, for, the, for the DIG in the end. So the German, the German DIGs have the procedure code as well as the ICD-10, which is a diagnosis code. That's a World Health Organization, um, uh, that's a WHO um, code. They've got the procedure codes. And basically you, there is a point at the bottom where you can have the chance to have add-on reimbursement as Stephen mentioned in France, even though the, DR, the DRG system will always evolve but it tends to lag behind innovation. And so every country will have its own way to, to try and kind of balance the act of, of new innovation as well as current DRGs. And so there is a potential for add-on reimbursement. That's, that's interesting. I'd, I'd imagine there's a, there must be a competitive element to, you know, to, to wanting that, but then there's, there's such a balance to maintain, I suppose, between, I suppose, reimbursement being the ultimate consent. We want you to, to do this and use this here. Absolutely, yeah, and, and you're exactly right because the ultimate outcome for any any med device company is that you have universal coverage from from an inch from an, so you, you're you're spot on, but off but that but that takes time, so it's it's this this, this tango in between. <laughs> so the two key um, key players from a commissioning perspective in Germany are the Federal Joint Committee. They're the top of the the pyramid. And the statutory health insurance companies, they are really important in, in Germany. There are many, over 100, but then there are, you know, the big ones in there, but they are absolutely key. And this is just, um, again, to really highlight that make sure, well, you don't have to make sure, but, but there, you will be reimbursed completely differently if your product will be, will fit in the inpatient sector or in the outpatient sector. And, and so that's just something to bear in mind. Um, I, I won't have to go through all those details, but they are very different and that's something to be aware of. Okay, great. So Stephen, if we, we jump back to you and, and you wanna cover, cover Italy? Okay, so certainly. So I think with Italy, the best thing to think about in Italy is it's 17 separate countries in one. So it's 17 separate territories and, uh, 20, uh, Stephen, yeah, 20. 20, sorry, 20 now, that's right. 20 separate, separate regions, regions uh, in one. Thank you, Deb, sorry, I'm thinking of France, I'm sorry. It's 20. So they're reimbursed for hospital activity. So there was a DRG system. They adopted the DRG system out of the, the CMS DRG system out of the USA, at version 27. And they're determined by a combination of procedure codes and diagnostic codes. So no big surprise there. The system is very rigid in the national level and procedure codes have not been updated since 2007. Um, so innovation is challenging in some areas of the Italian system. I think the thing to think about with Italy too, there's a very healthy private sector. And when you think of regions, you can think that there are some regional top-up payments across Italy as well. So, and, and on that, so again, and this may, this is, me, me playing my role of the uneducated well, I'm sure. But so you say that the procedure codes haven't been updated since 2007. So can that mean that new devices entering Italy that perhaps are new procedures or span different procedures can find it a little bit difficult to fit in the right, the right area with that then? Is that, is that what that It is, it is, it is difficult. But um, the, I should say that the, the, system that they've adopted or the CMS DRG system is quite a healthy one and the version they have is quite a good one. There are, um, in terms of update, the tariff hasn't been updated, but a number, but um, there have been some additional variants with procedures. So 
if we were to look at some of the new cancer treatments and the new cancer procedures, they have simply been dovetailed onto um, some of the existing codes and they've received supplemental additions to the code. So when I say not updated, I mean some of the, there have been supplementary additions, uh, marginal additions to coding, but the actual DRG itself has not been changed. Okay, Deborah, did you want to jump in there? Yeah, I just wanted to say that the thing with Italy as well is that that's on the national level, but mm. the regions have their own tariffs as well. So it so it says a national is national coding, national reimbursement, but then every region has variations as well. So even though the national one hasn't is very region hasn't been changed, the the regions uh, can move quickly and more freely. Absolutely, and that's the way to think about Italy as a regional system. And as Deborah said, the national tariffs are quite rigid. But you've got to look at perhaps the um, the TUC. So these are compensation for the interregional mobility. If you like, the northern states of Italy are extraordinarily wealthy and very successful, in not just commercially but socially, and they've established agreements between um, each region and um, and its and its national suppliers. Um, they've also gone into um, different agreements with the private providers so that a lot of good private providers are subcontracted by the region to provide public health care. And you may, if you, you saw, we all saw that in COVID and we're still seeing it in COVID. So um, the region will contract a private or a charitable hospital to perform perhaps some complex or some not so complex procedures. So um, not so complex procedures, hernias, for example, they might contract someone to, to take over the the payload for, for hernias in what we would call a general district hospital, but some of the more complex um, surgical procedures in, in head and neck surgery and uh, gastrointestinal and lung would be done by one of the uh, larger teaching hospitals. So there's a great deal of um, opportunity with regional, ta uh, regional tariffs. Great. So um, public and private healthcare providers are remunerated through a fee-for-service system. There's a tariff about patient service and there's a tariff for inpatient service, not too different to what Deborah was referring to in, in Germany. And I think that that's something that definitely you have to keep in mind for the whole thing. And there's a maximum allowable tariff. But in Italy, there's top-up payments, there's out-of-pocket payments, and there's supplemental fees paid for by private healthcare. Um, so what we should have pointed out that the... the the numbers of private health, I think it's about 40% now in Italy, are privately insured. And it's quite, it's quite dependent on latitude, as are a lot of conditions in Italy. So you'll find out there's greater private insurance in the north than there is in the south. Seems to make sense. But you'll also find that with a lot of conditions and a lot of diagnostics. So you might find that a lot of skin cancers are, uh, are, are far greater in the north than they are in the south. And so they pay more the skin cancer treatments in the north than they do in the south and it goes on oh absolutely so the needs might differ for certain procedures and treatments but, and different yeah your populations will change and so oh. that's really looking towards moving to rule a rewarding value so the regional authorities are the people you have to talk to much like wales and the work done by frank atherton and andrew goodall in in wales with robotics um, and a number of other things that they've done there okay great that's superb and then so on, on, to, on to Spain, Deborah. Yep. So Spain is um, similar to what Stephen was saying about Italy. Um, Spain is very much uh, 
17 autonomous communities. So um, it is an, a you know, public system as is most of Europe, as is Europe, you know, 90% 90% of us have um, public insurance, um, but it has the national level, but there's also the regional, so the autonomous communities. The way that Spain works is that not, there is a DRG system in Spain, but it's not really used. Spain are on what we would call block contracts, um, whereby the autonomous region will get a, a, a chunk of money, and then they would divide that to the different hospitals and the hospital gets a chunk of money and they just have to hand that out. So you're not paid per procedure. You, you, it's called, a, it's a block contract. So that's something to, to bear in mind for Spain. It's very different to let's say Germany or, or Italy. The other thing as well with Spain is they are 17 health regions. So what happens in Madrid will not happen or may not necessarily happen in Barcelona or Andalusia. So, so you do have to know that it is very, very regional. Okay. So from a catalogue perspective, again, from that national regional perspective, there's this common portfolio, which includes all of the health services that the Spanish healthcare system has. Um, and it's all the techniques, the procedures, and this is um, financed by the, the state and also the autonomous communities. But there's flexibility. So then, and it's what Stephen was saying about the, inter, the regionality. So then you have this complementary portfolio, which is what the regions have. And so it's financed again by the autonomous communities, but they're unique to each region because the south is very different to the north in Spain as well. Um, and there could be some health conditions that are more prevalent in different regions. And so the autonomous communities have this flexibility to have different procedures for their community. Um, and the region is responsible ultimately for the delivery of, of care and, and their budgets and the reimbursement. Spain is very, very regional. Okay. So this is a pathway that if you were to have a new medical device, um, again, it, it's a process, but, but there is a process. And so um, evaluated by the Spanish Agency for Medicines and Medical Devices, that gets passed down to the autonomous communities to have a look at. The autonomous communities will then look at financing. Health technology assessments are very big in Spain because of these block contracts. You have to make sure that the money, if we're spending extra money, what are, what are, what's the added value that I get? And so Reddits is this is a, a network of um, different health technologies across Spain that they look at a reporting de depending on how that goes. There's an assessment and then that can kind of get reimbursed. So that there is a process in Spain for, for, for devices. Um, There's just something to be aware of. I'd also like to point out that Spain, there's a number of other opportunities. There's the Mutuous, which is a, um, a health, uh, a workers' compensation system that operates very successfully. And they have a, a unique compensation or reimbursement scheme. And that allows another pathway for market access. Um, it's, a, it's a very comprehensive reimbursement scheme and it operates essentially in parallel, but it has a different premise um, uh, or a different operating mandate. So I think that's something worth considering when you're entering Spain. Look at the reimbursement for mutuals. And was it, shall we move on to England? Was there anything else we had to cover on? Well, Spain? there's a lot, but we just don't have the time. But anyway, so <laughs> yeah, England. No, sure, yeah. no, that's okay. So um, with, regards to the United, with regards to England, we're not covering Wales here, but I did mention the work done by Frank Atherton in Wales and Andrew Goodall with their current moving towards rewarding value and looking at operating, operating efficiencies and operating costs inside their own facilities and outcome-based agreements. Okay, the reimbursement system, it was what before we came into block contracts, uh, we were operating off the, the healthcare resource group. 
And the healthcare resource group was a way of attributing a cost, like a DRG code, to um, a procedure. So we're still doing, we're still looking, and we're still using HRG codes in the accounting system that covers England. In fact, something very similar is used in Scotland and not too dissimilar in Wales. You've got to go to the National Cost Collection Centre and have a look at which particular HRG covers your particular um, your, your silo. There's a number of other opportunities. Commissioning is changing in the NHS. The old CCGs are now the new IC integrated care systems and they're taking over national commissioning. A great example would be bariatric surgery. That was happened years ago. A number of other cancer procedures. Um, when you're looking at things like, there's also the high cost device list. There's the best practice tariff and that's a, an interesting provider, and that's actually that was happening for a long time. Very successful. There are various care pathways. There's the innovation ta technology tariff. There are top-up payments. But to make it simple, I think if you think in terms of nice, and then you think in terms of in getting inclusion in the NHS supply chain and getting local um, integrated care system funding, and then potentially NHS specialised services or Public Health England services. The innovative access pathways are, um, they're easy to understand. There's access collaboratives at the AHSNs, there's the clinical research networks um, that are part that have come under that. And that's a great avenue to get to your medical director who can then walk you into the C-suite. And that's more or less a multi-layered approach to procurement. So since we've gone on black block contract in the National Health Service, there are a number of things that have taken place at the same time, we've developed the integrated care systems, which are the old strategic health authorities. And those particular organisations are becoming, will become in time, their own, their own authorities. Now, they will always use reference codes for their accounting, and those reference codes are the HRG. So I would always for, urge anybody to look at the HRG system. And eventually we will go back to tarification of our system. Funding, the payment for mechanisms and reimbursements are provided according to the national tariff of the system. So that's NHSE and national NHS improvement. And they're now undergoing a whole review process for post-COVID tarification. And they're talking about something called a blended payment, which I think will be for partial block contract. The important thing to think about in funding in any of these countries, particularly England right now, is and, and, and in light of the medical device regulations, the new MDRs, it's extremely important for if you're introducing a technology or you have a technology in place and you might have 26 silo sites across the NHS, you're going to need to collect data. You're going to need to create a meaningful registry. You're going to need innovate, you're going to need data partners. And the NHS has a number of very good data partners. You're going to need to create evidence. That's just for your MDR, that's for the new MDR. And there's going to be a new regulation in England coming along with it, data collection. If you want to keep your technology in place so that your competitor can't kick it out with the data they're creating, you need to create data repositories. Ah, superb. Well, thank you very much um, for, for the insight into that. I mean, obviously what we just talked about there was, was such a, a quick snapshot of what is a, uh, an incredibly complex and, and really interesting variety of systems into reimbursement. Um, 
I'll just, before we, Henry, I'm aware that um, you've been very politely uh, waiting to, uh, to, to bring you into this, have a chat about it. <laughs> um, before we do that, you know, just a reminder to everybody, we've had a couple of questions coming in um, already, which we will get round to at the end. But if you do have any, please use the Q&A feature. Um, I've seen somebody in the chat already mention, um, asking about the slides that we've put there. So what Deborah and Stephen have very kindly said um, is that if you do want to talk through any of these, um, any of these territories or any of the nuances of each of these, then we'll, they'll very kindly, um, you know, have that conversation with you. We'll put their details on, um, on this. As I'm sure you can imagine, um, what you've just been shown is an insight into some highly specialized stuff and uh, we won't necessarily be sending that deck round, but as you say, Deborah and Stephen have said that they will, um, gladly have that conversation with you and, and give you their expert insight and, and analysis into reimbursement market access and all the other great things that, that they and Adele do. Um, so Henry, right, we'll pull you into this then and we'll, we'll, we'll get onto the recruitment side of things. So this is a, you know, as we've just seen with, with Stephen and Deborah talking about it, it's, it's a very specialized um, area, but are you seeing that I don't know, is, is, there been a, is there a change? Is there an increase in, in, in the health economic professional or reimbursement specialist within medical companies? Yeah, absolutely. It's something that we're doing quite a bit of, bit of work on now with some of our clients um, supporting them. But, um, but I think as you can see from what we've learned today, you know, getting reimbursement, it can be such a game changer for a company uh, and, and for their, their technology. Um, so having kind of a dedicated employee who who is an expert on really actioning everything that kind of you know Deborah and um you know Stephen has said is going to be really important I think now what we're seeing with a lot of um kind of uh, the HTAs that companies have got to go through um you've really kind of got to show a value proposition uh, and a really benefit of the technology um and you kind of look at that as a benefit to you know, number one the patient but then the provider also kind of the payer as well and also the benefits that the, the technology brings so it's really important to kind of have somebody who who can bring it all together um so I think kind of what you companies would look for are kind of hiring triggers um, to when to bring on someone like this. And I think me and Deborah have always said sooner rather than later. Um, I think that's something that the medical device industry is really starting to catch up and, um, and wake up to the importance of kind of the market access, reimbursement, health economics expertise that companies need to bring in um, and the importance of gathering the evidence that they need to kind of actually show the benefits of their technology when they're doing their HTAs, their health technology assessments. And then you know, if we kind of use NICE as an example, you know, getting a NICE recommendation for, the, for their technology actually kind of really amplifies, amplifies it in, in all of these other countries and, and either over in, in the US. Um, so kind of the looking at the responsibilities that these people can kind of bring in would be one, you know, kind of collecting the data, doing kind of the, the value propositions, core value dossiers, uh, health economic studies, you know, these will all benefit collecting kind of the data needed to kind of get that reimbursement at the end. And I, I think, you know, just to pick up on one thing you, you mentioned there, um, you know, you said about this professional and the, the need to bring them in and to do it sooner rather than later. I mean, it, it sounds as though this, you know, the abilities of someone in this role, and perhaps that's a testament to how popular they are becoming, can sometimes be, you know, make or break for the product, for the business and everything. So what, 
you know, should this be, in your opinion, Henry, one of your first, or anybody else's, it's one of your first hires, you know, when you're getting your first commercial professionals in, should you also be looking at this health economic role or, or, or would you say it differs per company or what, what, what do you think of that? I think it differs per company and also kind of would differ on the, you know, the technology that bringing in, let's say if they're bringing in a disruptive piece of technology where there's going to have to be kind of the, the new, the silo for codes that they're going to have to develop with professional societies uh, and kind of key key opinion leaders, then yeah, I think this would have to be kind of one of the first things that you, you kind of start thinking about in terms of the commercial hire. Uh, I also think that the data that this professional is going to be, you know, analysing and putting together would also be very relevant for any kind of CE mark uh, submission as well. Um, so what I'm finding is that these professionals actually kind of tie the whole commercial and leadership structure together, really educating them and increasing their awareness of the importance of reimbursement and market access. Okay. And, and I know something to bring Deborah in there, um, something we've, you mentioned about applying for the CE mark. Um, is this, you know, should, should companies be looking at exploring this, bringing someone in in this role pre-CE mark or should they wait until they've got that? Yeah, they should definitely do it as soon as possible. So absolutely in line with what Henry is saying. You don't need your CE mark. And certainly my experience is you've got your CE mark and especially for SMEs where you've got enough funds there and you've got your director of sales or your marketing director and they've forgotten about market access, you can absolutely do all this due diligence piece years before CE. Um, one, two years, absolutely. And that sets, sets the ground. So you don't need to wait for CE to, to hire in um, a, a market access specialist at all. I think one more thing there as well, it's uh, kind of getting the pricing strategy right as well um, is so important. And, and these are the, the kind of the, the professionals who are going to be able to kind of you know, get that pricing strategy right for when you are presenting for the HTAs as well. And, and actually, you've, that's a fantastic link um, into the questions that we've had there. So thanks for that. Yeah, seamless, seamless stuff. Um, so yeah, I was going to move on to some, some of the questions. We've had a few coming in from various people, some really interesting things. Um, and, you know, we, we've, we've had one of these questions, which was from, I'll just double check um, who it was from. Uh, it's from Fares. Um, and they've said, you know, in Europe, which is the closest, if there is one, which is the closest reimbursement system to the CMS um, or, or the US system? I don't, I, I think you're comparing apples with oranges, but um, so I don't think it's a fair, I don't think there's a comparator, but I think if there's a, a potential, if you're looking at reflections, um, then I would say that the private system that operates in Spain would be closer or the closest. It's a very healthy private market. And there is almost in the private payment to a physician and the procedure. So I see that as representing some of the CMS structure or the CPT structure that happens in the United States currently. Okay, okay. Yeah, um, and, and as a follow-up question from Faras as well, it's slightly different, but are there any countries that reimburse for remote patient monitoring of chronic conditions? Again, I'm sure that's a very big question, but. No, it's a, it's a, it's a very good question. And, um, there's a couple of interesting things happening. Germany have a, um, a, a, a they've recently in the last eight, nine, ten, ten months passed two acts of parliament through, and they are reimbursing um, uh, digital technology. And four of the digital technologies that are completely reimbursed 
for remote home monitoring. France recently gave an Israeli technology um, a way of measuring outcome-based performance uh, in, at home in, um, in terms of home monitoring. Two of the territories in Spain have done the same. Um, you're looking at um, Ireland, looking, uh, looking at currently with the HSE, are looking at two applications for home monitoring. So it, it's a regional, so it's, the answer is yes, but it's very regional. And it's, it's the same with the Nordics. The Nordics probably have one of the best monitoring, home monitoring systems in Europe. Um, and I think that you'll find that there's reimbursable codes and there are, sorry, there are reimbursable codes in all of the Nordics, particularly Norway, uh, in all the territories. Yes. Henry, you've got um, your hand raised. No, so, so I um, you found some very interesting kind of information coming from, from NICE with disruptive technology and, and digital health uh, and this area is, and what they were finding is that they were getting a, a lot of evidence submitted, but it wasn't kind of the all the evidence that they needed so that they're finding that they're having to give a lot of kind of education on the on the right level of evidence that's required for these these submissions as well um so it is something that's a kind of really interesting topic at the moment in the uh, in the space and if i may henry as well that's really important if there are clients from the us if there are people from the us listening as well because europe is a very different system and pricing in the us is very very different to Europe. So having exactly someone that Henry said is really important. Great. Um, another question, because um, I think we've got a little bit of time left actually, so we're hoping we'll get around to most of these. Um, from, from Pauline Goyot, um, for a disruptive medical device, what would be the most, which would be the most approachable country or territory in Europe? I don't know, Deborah, do you want to answer that one? Um, it's just, it, Stephen and I love, we love Spain. We just think it's got, they're just great forward thinkers. And also to what Stephen was saying about the private market, a lot of the innovation in Spain starts in the private market. So um, if I had to pick one, um, it would be Spain. Okay, great. Thanks for that. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll move on again. One from, from Raphael. What is the tendency for embracing reimbursement for devices that provide early preventative data to avoid costly reactive treatments? Absolutely. There's, there's actually three. There's a new department inside of Haas in France that is actually looking after that particular area, and that's part of their public health organisation. Um, there's a new organisation in uh, Finland that has taken this on board in a big way. And I would also stress, um, stress our friend to have a look at um, the work being done in uh, in Wales, um, so those that that, that 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 would be my my answer. They, they would be the regions I'd look at in terms of Europe. I'd also stress them to go and have a look at what's happening with digital health in some parts of Australia, because the tyranny of distance dictates that particular activity. Great, and I'll, I'll we've had a question from from Daniel Manson, which which covers more of the which goes back into the recruitment side of things. Uh, first of all, pats on the back all round. It does say great talk. So well done, everyone. Um, but Henry, what would be the actual titles or what sort of job titles should we look for um, or perhaps advertise for for a market access expert or a reimbursement expert? Yeah, so we do see a lot of kind of reimbursement analysts um, as a kind of like, a, let's say, an entry point into, into this kind of world in the medical devices, um, you know, typically in one of some of the the larger organizations um and then it is kind of senior manager healthcare economics and reimbursement um kind of for for kind of the european region 
seems to be the the, ne the next step. So kind of you build your expert expertise working in a reimbursement team as an analyst, um, you know, look, looking at all the relevant data and how to collect that, um, start building the knowledge there, and then you would move more into healthcare and economics, director of market access, um, and reimbursement specialists. Is there, is there at the moment, or can you see there being a position for this type of role within the C-suite, or where would that, where, where's that reporting line? Where would that go? Um, no, really interesting. So kind of, sometimes you kind of see it would go into kind of the, the head of clinical affairs or kind of clinical, clinical management there, um, or maybe like the chief, chief medical officer. Uh, potentially, um, it, it's it's a each company is doing it their their own way uh, and bringing their own expertise, so it kind of has their own unique reporting structures. Okay, yeah, no, cool. Um, so, a question from from Mark uh, Cragen, um, who's our oh, Cragen? Apologies, I've pronounced that wrong, Mark. Um, so, you mentioned the importance of registries within the MDR and also for maintaining reimbursement in England. Can a company have a single global registry that can be used across all regions, so the US and Europe, et cetera, or are these bodies requiring country-specific registries? No, um, I was referring to the MDR in Europe only. So that's the only thing I'm referring to. And I think that you're going to look at it as a country. So continent will be very different to the UK or to England in terms of the outcomes and the data required um, because of Brexit. So if I was to set up a registry or a data repository system, I would make sure that I capture the pre-operative assessment system. Uh, just so if I'm looking at tertiary care pre-op, intra-op, intra-op is going to be extremely important for the device and all the information will be on the machine or the technology you have in some form or another. And that'll enable you to do all sorts of um, complex calculations um, and look at the various uncertainties that are involved in, in devices and then look at outcomes and measurements in the community. And of course, you'll have devices that are used in the community. So you're going to look at a different data set. But I don't think a universal registry, I know a universal registry is used in diabetes with three, with three pharmaceutical companies. And that feeds um, a number of interesting publications. But in terms of med tech, not biotech or life science, it will just specifically be Europe. Superb. Um, an interesting one potentially about um, the, the future of, of, of reimbursement here. And Deborah, I'll put this one to you if, if that's all right. So what is your opinion on the value-based healthcare reimbursement model? Do you think this will be happening in the future? That's from Maria. Yeah, I do actually. And you find if we use England as an example, but certainly for other parts of Europe as well with the integrated care systems, that's now, because what we realize is what happens in primary care affects has a has a knock-on effect to admissions or if something happens in in, in the hospital it has a knock-on effect on what happens in the community and so this regional um, population health kind of silos that we're having with the integrated care systems or even in other parts of Europe as well they are starting to look absolutely at what is the whole pathway of care let's not just focus on what happens at one point of care but how does it affect the whole pathway and so the models I, I Stephen I correct me if I'm wrong but I think in the US with orthopedics it's it's a it's a, a it's that's definitely happening in the US and also orthopedics is quite clear cut then there are there are so many other procedures and clinical conditions that are more complex and have more variables but value-based care is absolutely the way it's going because governments and insurers are realizing that you can't have a short-term view so the and that's where the HTAs 
come in as well that uh, that Henry was talking about the health technology assessments that look at the you know what the value of the care is and how that can be across the whole um, the whole pathway. So yeah, definitely. No, the only thing I'd like to add is that some some forward-thinking CEOs in medtech have created centres of excellence and um, have created uh, in their particular silos um, and partnered with organisations like the National Health Service services and created opportunities for collecting data and getting into a value-added situation. Okay, great. Um, a question from Hussain. Um, is it the same pathway for customised medical devices for different countries or does that differ or is that a whole separate thing to, to address? No, I think it's a separate thing to address if it's customisable. Yes, definitely separate. Right, okay. Okay, so it'll be another webinar. Yes, <laughs> yes. Right, <laughs> absolutely, okay. Um, so moving on, um, we've got a question here from, from Omer um, about gene sequencing and new personalized cancer therapy tests, yes. the target chemotherapy and immunotherapy. Obviously, they're very new and there's a lot of excitement around those at the moment. Um, I mean, Omer's question was about the most welcoming countries from this, but I suppose the question I'll put to you is, you know, how are you seeing countries in different territories adapt to, to new treatments like this and, and, and where is doing it, I suppose, quickest? I think the, the important thing with CAR T-cell and um, biotech therapies is the indication for use. So that's the first thing to consider. What is the indication for use? And then what evidence do you have around it? So the most important thing for biotech is the value proposition. You've really got to assess what your value is in the chain and you have to position it correctly. And that's where you're going to get into your value proposition, your, sorry, from your value proposition into your pricing. And if you can get into your pricing, this is exactly what Henry was saying. You know, this is the progression of a lot of these people up, up, the, up the food chain in a, in, a, in a company, but it's also about the ability to build a good story and to build value and to build resilience into a technology. So in answer to the question, um, what we're seeing is people who get start early on building a value proposition of those people who succeed. Um, I think all European countries are very open to um, the, the new biotech, like the cellular protection, all the various mechanisms that are going on, a bit of clever stuff that was that generated out of the Sentinel paper that came out of Penn State in 2011 by Marcel and his, 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 his team. So I, I would suggest that, um, again, reflecting back on what Henry said, um, start early, get together with, um, I mean, if you may have a brilliant, a brilliant, protein pathway, you may have a, a wonderful way of penetrating a cell and, and turning a cell into a, in, into a battleship, but the value proposition is everything. Okay, superb. Well, look, we've got um, two more questions that I've, I've earmarked here that I'm, I'm going to put to you, and then um, I'll ask for any sort of closing comments, and that'll bring us through to, to the, um, the, the, the end of the hour. Um, first one is, um, have you heard, is it, is it the case that the EU is working to harmonise regulations for health technology assessment, which is one of the essential criteria for reimbursement? The answer is yes. It's called the E, it's, it's um, EU net, it's called. And um, I think there's 73 HTAs involved in it already. Um, whoever that person is, I can send them the reference material and the contact if they'd like to talk to a young lady in Belgium. Okay. Okay. I'll uh, we'll make sure that that um, that that gets communicated across. Yeah. No problem. Um, so um, last question that I'll put to you then, um, which is around timelines. Um, it's from anonymous attendee. 
Um, typically, how long are reimbursement timelines for disruptive medtech technology? Stephen, you gave one example of two and a half years way back at the, the beginning of this in France. Um, but is, can you even put a, a sort of vague timeline on it? Or is the variation too much from device to device? I think it matters device to device and outcome to outcome. So you might remember Penumbra many years ago was a, a, neuro, a neurological system. Um, and we found that there were some very willing governments and societies to back that. So you could go to the ministry and then the ministry would say, yes, we'll finance these and we'll create evidence using these. And we got onto a very early reimbursement pathway. So it depends on its, its importance because that stroke, that's, that, that's preventing the damages of stroke. It might be a, an oncology pathway. So you might look at some of the things that were going on with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and Roche and Boehringer-Ringelman and some of the associated things there that we got sorry, that were that we were associated with. Um, it depends on the technology, and it depends on the audience that you can get together. That's what I think it is. I think it's case by case. Like all things, it's about you've got to get to the right audience, and often it's the C-suite or this, you, this, this creature called a commissioner. And often you meet the surrogate of a commissioner, but you've got it with something as important as stroke, cancer, um, you know, I think uh, anything. And sorry, it's really, it's about, it, about, about preventing early death or disability, then you've actually got to get to the commissioner. Something I might add to that, if that's okay, Chris, is um, the, the, the formal pathway is that long process, whether it's Germany or France or England, it, it is very much, um, first year, get everything together to apply for a procedure code that then starts you on the journey. But it's not for listeners to be discouraged. That's You have to wait for three years until you get reimbursement and twiddle your thumbs in the meantime. Med devices have many, many routes to their, it, it's certainly less strict than pharmaceuticals. And so there are always ways for your um, for your technology to, 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 to get into the healthcare systems and to get paid. Um, and it's what Stephen is saying about your value proposition, the value that it creates. And that's what Henry's talking about as well. So don't, there is, in medical devices, at least in our eyes, there are very two very distinct areas of the formal side, which is that coding and that reimbursement, which you absolutely need, and that should be your goal. But there are many steps in between where you can certainly get get out into the healthcare systems, and and your technology can be out there. So, and and there are even within the formal routes, there are formal ways for reimbursement, and then there are always other ways as well. So, don't um, think that you have to wait for reimbursement to start. And, and, and of course, if, if anyone is, is looking at assessing those options about different types of market access and reimbursement, then Odell, Deborah, Stephen, our well placed help. We know someone you can, <laughs> we've got a friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, look, I mean, that, that's drawn us to the end um, of the questions and, and I suppose we, we can wrap things up now. So if you've got any, any closing comments just about you know, anything we've discussed about reimbursement, then you know, we'd love, love to hear them. Um, if there's anything you'd just like to add. Henry, if you want to want to go. Yeah, absolutely. So I think going back to the start, it's it's all about starting early with the process of bringing someone on like this. And and what, what we always talk about here at, at CM is that we are a, a marketing-led um, talent search firm. So always kind of think about the marketing that you're putting out there of how to attract the top talent. You know, put get content out there, uh, or you can work with us on that kind of getting getting data out there on your culture, your leadership, what your, your, what's the team like there to really try and attack, attack, attract the top talent from the other organizations. You know, the top talent are always gonna be looking at the competition 
uh, and what, what they're doing. But if you're getting marketing content out there about how great it is to work for your team and the mission that you're doing, um, it makes uh, our job as headhunters quite a bit easier as well when we're going out there and, and, and headhunting. Like, oh, yeah, absolutely. No, we've heard of this. Company. Oh, no, actually, the CEO's uh, leadership style is fantastic. I would love to have a chat. So that's what we always say, kind of get, get the marketing content out there for your hiring. Investing in employer brand. Exactly. Yeah, the, um, that's obviously something I'm quite into as well. Yeah, I totally agree. Stephen, any, anything you'd like to add at the end? Well, I'll just say at the end, yeah. Um, I think that, that um, exactly what Henry said, start early. Um, and someone like uh, Chapman Morris is in a great position to do that for you. Um, bring somebody on who understands value creation. And that's extremely important. And the other thing I would suggest that once you've got a, a footprint, or you've got an agreement with um, a clinical commissioner or a trust, collect data. Always collect data. That's all. Great. Data is king. <laughs> it is. Data, it, it really is, me if it's meaningfully done, um, otherwise those people who aren't, you could have, it, it strikes me that if you've got, you could have 200 installations across Europe, huge installations of a, of a, of a wonderful device, but if you haven't got that data being collected from that device, in five years' time, your picture will look very different. Right. Deborah? Yeah, I will. Just to say that remember to always look at the current reimbursement landscape because it could be that even though that the process is a long process for a new procedure, it could be that the current reimbursement, um, you could piggyback onto it or it could it could fit in. And so, and then as we said at the start, DRGs evolve. And so it, it will, it may not be that you need to do that. So if you just know the your playing field at the start, that just allows you to set the scene as to do you need to create something completely new or can it actually fit into something that already exists and that will then evolve into something bigger. Great. So they're the takeaways from it then. So we'll, we, you know, invest in that employer brand to attract great talent, invest and look at your data and make sure that you are up to speed and up to date with the reimbursement landscape before you enter into it. Um, and obviously, yeah, you know, use, use professional experts who can help you do that as well. Um, look, that, that draws us to a close. Um, I have put a link in the chat where people can download a PDF or register to download a PDF with some of the takeaways of, of, of this chat. Um, I'd like to say a massive thank you to Stephen and Deborah from Adele. Your insight, as always, is, is massively appreciated, and I'm sure everybody here agrees with me. And, and a huge thanks as well to Henry, um, your insight from that, you know, that recruiting perspective and, and all the way you do at CM Medical, um, you know, is, is, is great to hear about as well. So, yeah, thanks very much, guys. Thanks very much, everybody, for, um, for, for listening and for watching. Make sure to follow Charlton Morris on LinkedIn, Odell on LinkedIn, um, and we'll all be in touch. But, yeah, thanks very much, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks, Bye. everyone. Bye. Thank you. Bye.